All right, I'm pretty excited about this series. Yeah, you can do that. <laughs> Man, that's a way to start a message. Well, if you look in your worship guide, it says a message from Matt Hurd. I am not Matt Hurd. I have red hair, but I'm about three feet shorter than Matt. Um, but Matt, unfortunately, isn't able to be here tonight. He is actually serving in Spain, serving some of the folks um, who are at crew. And so you can be praying for him and his travels and his time uh, caring for the, the folks there on staff at crew. Um, but before we go on, I need to do make one more welcome, one more introduction. We have 20 interns that joined us last night. Would you guys stand up? Stand up. Woo! All right, you can sit down. I can tell that you loved every moment of that. Well, we're so delighted that you guys are here. It's a big deal for us that you're going to be with us for the next eight weeks. So thank you for taking these eight weeks to be with us and sharing your life with us. Well, like I said, we're in this series called The Parables of Jesus. And um, as you know, as we've been going through these series over the last um, few months, we've been creating books for you to go through together. Um, and this time during the summer, rather than creating a book, what we've done is we've put it all in the worship guide. Pretty cool design here. And so if you look at this, this has all of the study material that you can use with your group uh, this week. And so I would encourage you to hold on to this, to use this, to gather together, to talk about what we're talking about um, in worship. And if you're one of those kind of people that likes to have a binder. There are binders available in the bookstore, and uh, I'd encourage you to pick one of those up. And we got three holes right there. Put it in your binder, and it's like you got a book. So pretty awesome. Um, we're excited about this, and we're excited to go through this series of looking at the parables of Jesus. As you saw on this screen, we are tonight looking at probably the most famous parable of Jesus, because I would. I would guess that most people, especially in America, if you mention the Good Samaritan, they would know kind of what you're talking about. This has permeated all of our culture, in fact. I'm sure if we took a survey here and said, do you have a Good Samaritan story? Have you experienced a Good Samaritan story? You would say, yes, many of us have. My wife and I, in fact, had our very first Good Samaritan story when we first got married. And uh, we were living up in Virginia, it was in the wintertime, and we drove up to visit my brother and his wife for a weekend. And after the weekend Sunday night, we head back home, and as we're driving, um, the car starts bucking, and like everything starts shaking. And we, were, we broke down right at the best place to break down, where you're miles away from either exits. And we coast into the side of the highway, I look at my cell phone, and there aren't any bars no signal at all. This was a few years ago. I bet if I went back, they probably have signal there now, but they didn't then. And so we try to make a call and nothing happens. I get out of the car. I do what any uh, musician does. I open up the hood of my car and realize I have no idea what I'm looking at. <laughs> nothing. And so I close it and Lauren and I, we just decide, you know, here's our strategy. We're going we're gonna to stand outside and we're going to look pathetic and see if anybody stops. <laughs> And so there we are for a little bit. I guess we didn't look pathetic enough, but finally somebody stops and it's getting dark at this time and you're wanting to somebody to stop, but in the moment you're going, oh no, is this going to be a plot to a really creepy movie that's about to happen? Like you just kind of get a little weirded out. And this big dude gets out of the car and, um, and he walks towards us and he says, I see you're broken down. I'm like, you would be correct, sir. And I tell him, hey, my phone doesn't have any signal. This guy doesn't have a cell phone either. 
I guess if he did, he wouldn't have signal either. But he picked us up, and Lauren and I decided, let's ride with him together, um, just in case. And so we go several miles down the road. He drops us, well, he doesn't drop us off, but he takes us to a payphone, probably the first and last time I've used a payphone. But I call AAA, and they say, you know, they kind of give you that, like, we'll be there in, you know, one to two hours, and you're like, great. Um, so he takes us back to the car, and, um, and I just, we said, thank you. Thank you so much. And he, you know, he just said, hey, I'm just trying to be a good Samaritan, is what he said to me. And he said, I just ask you to do the same thing when that happens. And we said, all right, we're all about that. And so he leaves, and there we are. I mean, literally, it's probably about an hour, hour and a half. Um, we're singing Kumbaya in the car. It's really cold, and the tow truck finally gets there puts the car on the bed of the tow truck, and there we are um, on a bench seat of a tow truck. The tow truck driver, I think it's Jerry, it was me in the middle and my wife, and we had two hours to drive, two hours of small talk. That is like torture for an introvert. But he got us home, and we got our car in the shop, got it fixed. But that's my Good Samaritan story. I, we would have been, we'd probably still be there, or we would have made a trek to the payphone. But this guy knew exactly where to take us. He saw our need and he met our need in that moment. You have those stories too. And our whole culture here in America is permeated with this understanding of a good Samaritan. In fact, a lot of companies now um, have this kind of, this, this understanding of what it is to be a good Samaritan. There's companies that are all about a cause. In fact, Tom's Shoes, many of you are familiar with Tom's Shoes. I think, uh, yes, I am wearing some Tom's Shoes. When you buy a pair of Tom's, they then send a pair of Tom's to those who are in need. And it's this great way to care for people, people who are in need. And so a lot of companies are doing this now. It's something that's very much in our culture, and it's something, if you look at a lot of hospitals, a lot of orphanages, it came out of this idea of what it means to be a good Samaritan. It came out of the idea of what it means to follow Jesus and the love like Jesus, but it wasn't always this way. In fact, if you read your history books, the ancient Roman Empire, what you find is that they actually didn't really care for those who were weak and vulnerable, those who were needy, those who were sick. And in fact, they kind of discarded them. And one historian, I found this this week, this is what he said, it was a historical scholar, said, Christianity established the principle that to help the sick and needy is a sign of strength and not weakness. And so we, here in 2017, are enjoying what has happened over the last 2,000 years as, as God's people has showed what it looks like to love like Jesus. Very interesting thing, in the fourth century, there was an emperor named Julian, and he was a pagan empire. He was trying, an emperor, and he was trying to rebuild the pagan religion. And listen to this letter that he wrote to a pagan priest. This is what he said about Christians. Nothing has contributed to the progress of the superstitions of these Christians as their charity to strangers. The impious Galileans, those are Christians, provide not only for their own poor, but for ours as well. He's marveling at what the Christians are doing. Because what the Christians are doing, what we are to do, is we are to love as God has loved us. We see every human being with absolute and utter dignity. They're made in the image of God. And so it doesn't matter if they're poor and needy. It doesn't matter if they're strong, if they've got everything we're called to love. And that's what we see in this parable. And I think where we are in 2017, because it has permeated our culture in such a way, 
I think it's become a tame parable. It kind of has a sentimental sensibility, even the story I told you, there's something sentimental as I told it. Um, I felt that. And when Jesus told this story, it wasn't anything that was tame. In fact, it was scandalous. And as Jesus told this story, it was about a scandalous love. That's what this story is about. And what I want to look at with you over these brief moments we have are three points that we see in this text, and it's this. It is the action of love. And then we see the motivation of love, and then what we see is the redemption of love. And so I want to look at this passage first. I want to read it, and here's what I want to do. I want us to stand for the reading of God's Word. Would you stand as I read this passage from Luke 10? Listen, whoever has ears, let them hear. And this is Luke 10, starting in verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Let me pray for our time together. Heavenly Father, we are here and we are dependent upon your Holy Spirit to take this passage that might be really familiar to some of us, that might uh, be new to some of us, but the concept isn't new, and we ask that you would take this, take your word, and that you would drive it deep into our hearts in such a way that we would be able to go and do what it says to go and do likewise. We depend on your spirit to do this. We depend on your spirit to lead us. And so we ask that you would give us the ears to hear and the courage to do what it says. We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus and all God's people said, Amen. You can be seated. Well, this first point that we see in the, in the passage is this action of love. We see what love looks like in action. And what's so interesting here is you see it so vividly, the way Jesus portrays this. And so I want to give us just a quick explanation of what's going on, some, kind of set some context. What's going on here is Jesus apparently is somewhere where there's some teaching going on. Jesus was probably teaching. And here this lawyer stands up and he asks a question. Now this isn't a lawyer like an attorney. This isn't a, a lawyer that's on an episode of Law and Order. This is a lawyer who is a teacher of God's law. 
of the Mosaic Law. It's more like a theologian, like a biblical scholar, and he's an expert on the Mosaic Law. And he, so he stands up and he asks Jesus a question, a really good question. He says, how can we inherit eternal life? And I love the next move that Jesus does because he doesn't answer the question, or rather he answers the question with a question. When you or I answer a question with a question, it's because we're avoiding the question. Like when your friend has a new haircut and they come up to you and say, how do you like my new haircut? And you're like, how do you like your new haircut? Because we want to avoid the question, but Jesus isn't doing this. Jesus is zeroing in on the man because he loves him. And he asks a question. He says, what does the law say? How do you read it? And he does this because he wants the man, the lawyer, to begin to think. And the man answers. He says, well, I, what the law says is you're to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, your strength. And you're to love your neighbor as yourself. He's summarizing the whole Mosaic law, all of the Ten Commandments. And he's actually pulling from two parts of Scripture in Deuteronomy and Leviticus. But he's summing it up. And what I love next is Jesus says, you answer correctly. And he said, and if you do that, you'll live. Because Jesus knows something. Jesus knows that love is the very essence of what it means to be human. To love is to be human because you and I were made, we were built to receive love, and we were made to give love. That's who we are. Whether you're a follower of Jesus or not tonight, that's what you were made for, to receive love and to give love. And so Jesus says, you're right. That's what it's about. But there's something here, I think, when we read familiar passages, we kind of can read it stoically. And Jesus says, you're correct. And if you do this, you will live. But there's almost probably a hint of sarcasm here. Jesus is kind of saying something. There's a bit of irony here. And he's saying, if you can do all of that, if you can actually love God by submitting all of your actions, your motivations, your thoughts, your words, if God can become the very centerpiece of your life, the supreme object of everything that you are and everything that you do, everywhere that you go, and oh, if you love your neighbor in such a way where you put their wants, desires, and needs on the same plane as your own, if you do all that perfectly, then you'll live. Then you'll have life. And he says this back to the man, to the lawyer. And then it goes on, and watch what happens here. Because the man says something. The lawyer gets backed up into a corner. And again, we've all seen Law and Order. We know what happens when an attorney gets backed up into a corner. He begins to ask more questions. And it says he tries to justify himself, wanting to justify himself. He says, who, who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor. And Jesus doesn't answer the question. Jesus tells a story. What I love about what Pastor Joel taught us last week is how important stories are. And I came across this this week. It, it, this is what one writer says, that Jesus told parables, told stories, because he knew what psychologists and neuroscientists have discovered today, that the logical left brain will always keep us in the mode of control and self-deception. But that storied right brain side of the brain is more open to hear the truth. And so Jesus tells a story. And he tells a story because he wants this man to hear what's true. He wants this man to listen 
And so he begins to tell the story and he shows us in the story what the action of love looks like. He shows us what the motivation of love looks like. And this is the story that he tells. He says that there's a man that goes from Jerusalem down to Jericho. Jerusalem, set, it set much higher in elevation than Jericho, and it was about a 17-mile road. And mountainous, it was a treacherous road, winding in and out. And in fact, this road was so treacherous that there was a part of it called the Bloody Pass. It's where the robbers hung out. It's everybody knew that this is where, if you're going to get mugged on the road, this is where it's going to happen. Everybody knew that. And as Jesus tells this story, it's very vivid. Something's going on here. And this man, this Jewish man, makes his way from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and he gets mugged, he gets jumped. And they rob him, they beat him, they leave him for dead. It says they strip him because back then clothing was one of the most valuable things that they had there. It was very valuable. And so they took it and they left him for dead. And then the priest shows up and the priest sees him, but he moves to the other side of the road and continues. The Levite does the same thing. These are both holy men. These are men that served, one of them served as a priest in the temple. The Levite assisted in the temple. And we can use our imagination a little bit of why they would have passed. One of those reasons could be because if the man was dead and they went to touch the man, they would be ceremonially unclean. And, and the priest was probably just serving in Jerusalem for a little while. He's heading back home and he's thinking to himself, if I touch him and I'm unclean, I got to go back to the temple and then I got to spend, you know, a couple weeks getting purified again and then I can finally get back home to my wife. I don't know if that's what he's thinking, but use your imagination. So there might be that going on. We don't really know, but they avoid him. They go to the other side of the road. And here's something I came across this week. The very last sermon that Martin Luther King preached, or I shouldn't say that, it was the day before he was assassinated. He preached on this very passage. And listen to what Dr. King said. He said, but I'm gonna tell you what my imagination tells me. It's possible that those men were afraid. What he is saying, and I think he's right, the priest and the Levite were filled with fear. That's why they didn't stop. They couldn't handle it. They were filled with fear in such a way where it held them back just like fear holds us back. It made them veer away because they were fearful of security. They thought maybe the robbers were still right around the corner. And if they jumped in, maybe the robbers might jump them, rob them. Or maybe they were fearful of the inconvenience Maybe they were fearful of the discomfort. Maybe they were fearful of their status. They were holy men. And they, if they would have done this, their status could have been in jeopardy. But fear was what ruled them in this moment. And what we see is this Samaritan comes in and he on his way, and what we know, and many of you know this, the Samaritans were the enemies in a lot of ways to the Jews. And here is this Jewish man, and the Samaritan gets off of his animal he's riding. He sees the man, he has compassion, and we'll look at that in just a moment, and he steps down, he stoops down, he binds his wounds, he puts oil to help soothe the pain, he picks him up, he puts him on his animal, and what that means is this man no longer was riding his own animal, but he had to walk while he walked alongside of the animal. 
And he took them to an inn, and then he said to the innkeeper, if, if you need any more money, I will pay you when I get back. This is really significant because what we understand back then in those times, if somebody was in that kind of situation, like this man who was recuperating, and if he was there long enough that he couldn't pay, what would happen is it would drive him. It would, he would become a slave of whoever's care he was under. So not only did this Samaritan bind his wounds, not only did he pick him up, not only did he give him shelter, but he actually, in a sense, rescued him from slavery. And he cared for him. He cared for every need. His love had no limits. And in a phrase, he did what he could with where he was, with what he had. And he didn't hold anything back. He loved this man. And what's so interesting is this Samaritan, an enemy of the Jews, loved a man in such a way that it was beyond being tolerant. It was beyond tolerating his enemy, but he embraced his enemy in that moment. If you think about it, to stoop down, to bandage somebody's wounds, he embraced his enemy. Significant. And Jesus tells this story. And as he tells this story, I'm sure that the lawyer who heard it, and I know for me as I read it and as I hear it and tell it again, I feel the weight and the burden of love on my shoulders that almost feels unbearable. No, I think it is unbearable. I lack the resources to love like that. That's what Jesus is telling this man. In fact, what I think we see here is Jesus is pointing out something. He's saying that real love, real love, actually begins when we realize that we don't love really. We don't know how to love really. We lack the capacity because of our fear. We want to limit our love. I want to limit my love because if I limit my love, I can control that. You can control that. But when you take limits off of love, you can't control it. And that's what we see here, this action of love. It's limitless. And we see the way this man cares. And Jesus is pulling our attention to something. Yesterday morning and Saturday night, I like the way Matt, uh, Pastor Matt said, he said, we all love the idea of love more than we actually like the action of love. And so the question for us this evening is how do we move from the idea of love? And how do we move to a place where we can actually begin to move with action? It has to do with our motivation. And so we have to understand what is the motivation of love. And that's what we are going to see here in this second, this second part. What we actually see are two different cases of motivation in the passage that we heard. We see the way the lawyers motivate it, but then we see the way the Samaritan is motivated. First, the lawyer is motivated. What I love about Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke, is that he's pulling back the curtain in one of these verses, and he's saying, he's giving us a little glimpse into the inner life of this lawyer. And this is what he says, and this is uh, verse um, 29. But he, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? He was backed in the corner, like I said, 
And he is asking, what is the requirement of God's love? What is the requirement of God's righteousness? Because Jesus, surely you don't mean my neighbor is anybody. Surely you don't mean my neighbor is everybody. Surely there's got to be some limits to this kind of love. Surely. My name's not Shirley. Um, and here's what we see is we see his motivation at play. What we can look at is he's saying what Luke tells us is the man is trying to justify himself. There's really two parts to this motivation. The man's motivation is one, to call Jesus out. He wants to trap Jesus. He wants, in fact, to show that Jesus is blasphemous. But then the other motivation is he wants to show that he's right. He wants to show that he is good. He wants to show that he is just. That's what it means to justify yourself. Prove that you're right. And he's trying to put limit on his love, and that actually has nothing to do with his neighbor, has everything to do with himself. He's not actually trying to love God for who he is. He's not actually trying to love his neighbor as himself. What he's actually trying to do, or, or what he's actually doing really well, is he's loving himself in such a way where he's trying to prove himself to be right, prove himself to be good, prove himself to be just. He's justifying himself. You and I do the same thing. I do the same thing in such a way where my motives of what I think is love is actually a motive that is about me. It's not about God. It's not about the person in front of me. It's about me. Let me tell you a quick story here to illustrate this. When I was in fourth grade, my, the thing that I was so excited for, um, the thing I wanted was the 8-bit Nintendo system. This is old school. This is like Duck Hunt. Yeah, you can do that. This is Super Mario Brothers 1, 2, and 3. It was the best. And I wanted it so bad, all my friends had it. And that, this was about November, and it was on my Christmas list. Well, my family, we didn't have the Nintendo. It was on the Christmas list. But we did have um, a computer that had some games on it. And one of my favorite games to play was this game called Captain Comic. And I loved, loved playing it. And I remember sitting there one night, my parents actually were out, and my two older brothers were there. Um, I was in fourth grade. Um, and I was playing this game, and I got really, really far. And all of a sudden, like in those old games, when you lose, like you gotta go to the very beginning, there's no saving. And I was really far, and I lost, and I got, man, I was furious. And I slammed my hands on the desk, and I got up, and I walked, stomping out to the hall, and I kicked the wall, and my foot was stuck in the hole that I left in the wall. And in that moment, it was like uh, I saw a ghost, because my first thought wasn't, oh, I just kicked a hole in the wall. My first thought was, I'm not going to get my Nintendo. <laughs> like if I can't be responsible with this computer game, they're not going to give me a Nintendo. And so immediately, I head downstairs. And we had like a whiteboard in our kitchen. I'm sure you guys, you may have one too. And I write a note, dear mom and dad, I am so, so sorry for kicking a hole in the wall. Please forgive me, Pete. Well, they didn't get home yet. And so I went to bed, probably cried myself to sleep. Not because I kicked a hole in the wall, but because I wasn't going to get Nintendo. Woke up the next morning and my parents... They talked with me and um, they said, we forgive you. Here's the deal. You got to help fix the hole with your dad. And, um, and so I did. 
And fast forward a, about a month later, get to Christmas morning, I open up the Nintendo and I was delighted. Yeah, but here's what I, here's what I have learned. Looking back on this, I don't think I got this when I was in fourth grade, but looking back, what I was actually motivated about, I wasn't sorry because of my love for my mom and dad and I kicked a hole in their house. I was sorry because I'm not gonna get my Nintendo. I wasn't motivated out of my love for my mom and dad, though I love them dearly. I was motivated out of my love for myself. I wanted to get what I wanted to get. And my motivation was off, but what I wrote on the whiteboard, you could go either way. It could look like it was really about mom and dad, or if you really look behind it all, it was about me. That's what we see going on here with this man. His motivation isn't really to love God with all his heart and strength and his neighbor as himself. His motivation was to justify himself, to look right, to look good. And we see that motivation going on. But then Jesus shows us another motivation in this story. And it happens here in uh, verse 33. Notice the motivation of the Samaritan. Verse 33 says, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. That word compassion is very deliberate, I think. It's a word in the Greek that means splachnesia. And the way it sounds is almost like what it really means. It means that you have, that you are moved in your bowels, yeah, with pity. You were moved in your gut with pity. The very foundation and inner life of who you are is moved in such a way that you're filled with sympathy and compassion. It's splachnesia. And the reason this is so important, this is what the man had. It's what the Samaritan had was compassion. He was moved in his bowels and his gut in a deep way. It was the foundation of who he was. And the reason this is important is because this is the same word all throughout the Gospels that Jesus describes Jesus' emotional life. When Jesus saw the crowds, it said he had compassion, splachnesia. He was moved at the core of who he was. When Jesus saw the sick, he was moved with who he was at the bottom. It was compassion. In fact, when Jesus told the story of the parable of the prodigal son that we'll hear in a little bit, or a little in a few weeks, the word that we see with the father when he sees his son, his lost son running towards him as he runs towards his son, he had compassion. It's the same word, splachnesia. Splachnesomai, I think is how you say it. That is what was at the core of who Jesus was. So this Samaritan has compassion. What Jesus is telling us, this Samaritan had the love of Jesus in the very center and core of who he was. That's what drove him. That was his motivation to love. That kind of compassion. And it moved him to action. Significant. Motivation has everything to do with how we move, the way we act. Because that motivation we need is that same motivation that the Samaritan had. That's what moves us from the idea of love to the action of love. And Jesus is showing us something in this parable 
by telling us that's what the Samaritan had. But here's the thing. If you think about all of this, as you think about the story, what we begin to realize is we don't do this naturally. It doesn't come naturally to us. And Jesus knows that. In fact, the story is the way Jesus turns up the heat for the man listening and for us. It's, the, it's what Jesus does to expose our motives. It's what Jesus does to expo expose our old foundations, the things we hold on to, the things that make us good and make us right, the things we try to justify ourselves with. Jesus is exposing that so he might give us something else. And so it moves us into this last point that I'll quickly look at, and it's the redemption of love. And what we see next is the most obvious thing about the parable. And it is this, who does Jesus cast as the hero of the story? Because here's the thing, if the story was solely about us stepping down, stooping in such a way where we can care for those who are poor and needy, if that was its sole purpose, which is hugely important, Jesus could have put it different way. He could have said, he could have said that the hero was actually a Jewish man and the man that was on the side of the road was a Samaritan and this Jewish man loved his enemy and stooped down and cared for him. But Jesus wants to show us something else. Jesus shows us that the priest and the Levite are actually clinging to an old life. They're clinging to the things that justify them. They're clinging to their own goodness, their own righteousness. But then we see the Samaritan, who by all accounts, as we see it in Scripture, is a heretic. They didn't follow the rule and the letter of the law of God. In fact, that's what Jesus believed. But Jesus in this moment isn't saying that it's okay to be a heretic. No, that's not the, the point. Jesus isn't saying sin is, is okay, it doesn't matter. That's not the point either. The reason Jesus cast the hero as a Samaritan and the reason Jesus hung out with sinners, with thieves and liars and addicts is because Jesus wants to show us that there is nothing, absolutely nothing that can keep us away from who God is. He wants to show us how he can make sinners into people who are good and righteous. That's what he's after. He wants to show us what his power does. There is a remarkably, magnificently mediocre movie called Fred Claus about 10 years ago. Some of you may remember it. If you don't, don't go out of your way to go see it. It was a Christmas movie, a very mediocre Christmas movie, but uh, Fred Claus was the brother of Santa, apparently. And what we see, there's this wonderful scene where it just sparkles with the gospel. There's amazing implications. And it's Fred Claus is looking at the naughty and niceless. And in a moment of, um, I don't know if it was weakness, but in a moment of absolute mercy, he... Uh, he does unjust justice. He looks at the naughty list and he sees all of these rough around the edges kids. He sees their names and he's got the nice stamp. And he takes the nice stamp and in this moment he just takes all of the kids and stamps each one of them nice. 
and goes down. And in that moment, there is um, kind of a, a, an efficiency expert at the North Pole that says, you can't do that. He, they're mortified that, that he's doing this. And he does it anyway. And that's kind of where, where it ends. The movie goes on. But here's what we see in this story, is Jesus Christ has the audacity, has the authority, and has the sovereignty to come and to take naughty kids and to make them nice. Jesus has the ability to do this because of what Jesus comes and does for us. Because what we see is it doesn't matter if you're a Samaritan, it doesn't matter who you are, where you've been, what you've done, how self-justifying you are. When we come to the foot of the cross, he makes us good because of what he's done. Many of you know this, but just to remind us, and maybe you don't, Scripture is very clear, and it says that none of us seek God, no, not one. There's no who is, none of us who are, are righteous. In fact, it tells us we're enemies, we're at enmity with God. That's what it tells us. But here's what the story is telling us louder. Is it saying there is one who is an ultimate Samaritan. It's telling us that there is one who is a great Samaritan. What did the Samaritan do? He stooped down, he bandaged the wounds, he picked up the man, he gave him shelter, he freed him from slavery. And do you know what? When nobody was looking at us, when other people passed us by, when we were there hurting, when we were there in a place of helplessness, Jesus stepped down and he comes and he heals us. Jesus comes to you and to me tonight and he provides a shelter from the storm. Not only that, but Jesus comes and he rescues you from whatever's enslaving you. Jesus comes to restore you. And he comes and looks at you with great compassion. And as a result, it moves us to a place where it rewires our heart to be compassionate. Splach Nizamai. It moves us in that direction, and it's because of the death and the resurrection of Jesus that it moves us to be people who emulate a good Samaritan, a Samaritan who is ultimate and gave us everything that we need through his work. And as Dr. King said, the priest and the Levite, what kept them from stopping is fear. But perfect love drives out fear. And so tonight, friends, we're going to come around this table and we're going to remember that perfect love. We're going to remember that sacrifice of what Christ has done for you and for me. We're going to remember and celebrate it together. And it moves us in such a way where we stop justifying ourselves, but we can love people in a way that's not to benefit ourselves, but it's to benefit them. This is what Peter says. In 1 Peter 2, he says, For to this 
You have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, we are healed. For you were strained like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd an overseer of your soul. I want to invite the communion servers to get into place right now. And we're going to come around this meal together. And we're going to remember that Jesus gave his body for us. This bread represents it. That Jesus gave his blood for us. This juice represents it. And let me give some basic instructions of how this will go. And many of you know, you'll be invited to come row at a time. And we ask uh, parents that you give the instructions that your kids need. Guardians give the instructions that your kids need. And you will be invited to come row at a time and you will come to the station that is closest to you, and you'll take a piece of bread, and you will dip it in the cup. It's only one cup tonight, and it's juice. It's just juice, and you'll dip it into that cup, and you'll partake of that, these elements immediately. This is the intinction method, and you'll head back to your seat. If for some reason you're not able to make it to one of these stations, just simply put your hand up, and we'll be sure to get people to you and serve you these elements. Those of you online, you can begin uh, to partake immediately. If you don't know Jesus Christ, if you've never encountered what I just talked about, where he comes and he heals and he shelters and he frees from the things that enslave us, if you've never met him as Lord and as a Savior, you can know him tonight. And if you want to, there'll be ministers in the back of the room who would love nothing more than to pray with you and introduce you to Jesus and to serve you these elements. Let me remind us of what Scripture tells us. It says that on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also after supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. As often as you drink it, do this in remembrance of me. For as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. And so, friends, tonight, come and might you again taste and see the goodness of Christ, the compassion of Christ that is poured out for you and for me. Come.